Fighting Through from Dunkirk to Hamburg, Podcast 8. The D-Day Poems of Company Sergeant Major Douglas Gray. More great previously unpublished history. Yes, it's four years today since we left France in a very undignified way. But four years has made a big difference to us, and now our debts we can pay. A long time we've waited for D-Day, all preliminary work being done, and once more the task is more than plain, clear Europe and banish the Hun. I'm Paul Cheel, son of Bill Cheel, whose World War II memoirs have been published by Pen and Sword in Fighting Through from Dunkirk to Hamburg. This is the third and final part in the trilogy about Doug Gray's war, and uh, if you've missed the first two, I'd recommend you listen to them first to give you the full background to Doug's poetry, which we're about to hear. My aim with these podcasts is to share with you bits from my dad's book and much more. Since I got dad's memoirs published, and they're written by him, I should add, not by me, I've also been very blessed by being sent a variety of comrades' memoirs connected to dad, and I'm hugely excited about some of the ones which are to be in future podcasts. They've never been published before and include the diary of the ship's captain, Tom Woods, who rescued dad from the Dunkirk beaches and the writings of Major Petch, for whom Dad was Batman, around the time of Dunkirk. Both great history. One by one, Dad's comrades are resurfacing, and I've even seen photographs of lads who were mentioned in his memoir, such as his best friend Don Savage, who was a rear gunner on a Lancaster, and who was shot down and killed. Don's family have done some great work retracing his story, and I hope to be sharing that with you sometime. I'm even going to bring you the story of my dad's 1936 Morris 10, which I've discovered is still alive and revving in Oxford, England, after 80 years, good heavens. Dad was driving the car in chapter one of his memoir. These are just some of the stories still to come. If you don't want to miss out, make sure you subscribe, if possible, via whichever platform you use. But if not, take a look at fightingthroughpodcast.co.uk and you'll find a way to keep in touch, either through email or social media, or my occasional blog site. If you want to support my work on these podcasts, please buy the book, Fighting Through from Dunkirk to Hamburg. It's available on Kobo, Apple, Kindle, etc., or hardback from all bookstores, including Amazon and eBay, or Pen and Sword Direct. And if you quote voucher code 231142 to Pen and Sword, you'll get a special discount. That's 231142. There are links to all these sources on fightingthroughpodcast.co.uk. Before I proceed, I'm just going to give you a little bit of the feedback I've received. 
in the past and there's one here from Kevin. I enjoy the fighting through podcasts very much, if enjoy is the right word that is, as they are sometimes quite harrowing. There are lots of podcasts out there that relate to historical events in one way or another, but it's rare to find one like yours that recounts the everyday experiences of the common man caught up in the events of that time. Best wishes and keep up the great work. Here's one from Victoria in Australia. Dear Paul, I wanted to say thank you to your father and his comrades who fought in the war. I found the podcast on iTunes and it is stunning. I'm listening to it now with tears in my eyes. Your father's story has brought history alive and your reading of his diaries is a wonderful tribute to him. The young boys were so brave. Thank you. Well, thank you so much to you, Victoria and Kevin. Um, it's comments like these that inspired me to pick up with the podcast again after a long gap following my first three episodes. And um, I'm hoping and expecting to continue with a monthly release from now on. But thank you again for your comments, guys. When Company Sergeant Major Gray wasn't fighting for the Green Howards, sometime in 1944 he found time to compose some war poems. It's not flowery poetry, you might rather call it soldierly, but it's good stuff and it captures the spirit of events rather nicely, in my humble opinion. Before I read them, I'd like to give you a bit of background about the war and hopefully that'll help people appreciate where the verse is coming from. Firstly, many soldiers' experiences of the harsh and often cruel violence at Dunkirk were very formative, and this influenced their attitude throughout the rest of the war. Not only did they realise that they had to kill or be killed, but they learned a great deal about actual fighting at Dunkirk. In my dad's case, he went to France with what was called the British Expeditionary Force, the BEF, in April 1940. Initially, it wasn't to fight, but to build an airfield as part of a Labour battalion, because of course Dad, at the beginning of the war, was in the reserves or the Territorial Army. The Germans invaded and charged mercilessly through the French countryside, killing Allied soldiers and civilians, at times in a very ruthless fashion, with their so-called Blitzkrieg. So Dad, having never fired a gun, was suddenly faced with a fully armed and trained German army bearing down upon them. And when the troops finally got to the beaches at Dunkirk, the carnage continued, with the German Stukas machine-gunning and bombing the beaches and sand dunes. But eventually, nearly 340,000 troops managed to get back to England, and as Dad explained in his memoir, we came back from France very much wiser and much more experienced. I believe the miracle of Dunkirk had a far wider significance than anybody imagined at the time. Most of the soldiers who came back were the youth of Britain and eventually formed the nucleus of the 8th Army in Africa and the 14th Army in Burma. The war could have lasted another two years had we not been brought back from Dunkirk. But of course after that the Allies almost immediately started to plan the day when we would return to France. The task was enormous. It wasn't just a question of building more weapons and thousands of ships and training more soldiers. 
but it was the administration of it all and more. There were new inventions in weaponry, such as tanks that could lay carpet on the beaches so vehicles wouldn't sink into the soft sand. There was subterfuge and misdirection to stop the Germans finding out when and where we would invade. There was General Patton's 5th US Army Group, established in the Dover region with fake radio traffic and imitation inflatable tanks to fool the German reconnaissance into thinking there was more armament than there was. There were battles to fight in North Africa and Sicily and Italy. And my favourite innovation? Pluto. Pipeline under the ocean. Pluto was an underwater pipeline laid from Southampton to France to supply the Allied bridgehead with essential fuels after the invasion had taken place. Last but not least was the innovation of the flat-bottomed landing craft, such as the LST, landing ship tank. These were assorted sizes and were built specially for the invasion, incorporating a drop-down ramp which allowed very swift disembarkation of whatever cargo was being carried. And so it goes on and on. But the day it happened was the day when American actor John Wayne became my hero because in the film The Longest Day he kind of set the record straight for why it had taken the British so long to organise a return to France. I'll leave it to the history books to explain fully why it took four years but it was clearly Winston Churchill's view that it had to be so and he was the man. But in the film The Longest Day John Wayne confronts an American soldier who's complaining about how the troops are impatient and itching to get over to France. And John Wayne tears him off a strip by pointing out that England has been getting blitzed with a knife as a throat for nearly five years since 1940, and didn't he think they were also impatient and itching to get over to France? The guy shut up immediately. Good man, John. But my dad sums up the spirit of the thinking when he says, In the spearhead... There were young men from all over the British Isles. I knew that the brave Canadians wanted to avenge Dieppe and that the American boys needed to see that the war with Germany came to a conclusion so they could settle their outstanding account with Japan over Pearl Harbour. They would give their all, every one of them, and whilst sharing such dangerous experiences would create an enormous bond of comradeship. Okay, with that background, here we go with the poems. They were written as several individual poems, but they kind of merge into one continuous story, so feel free to take it whichever way you like. D-Day arrives. Yes, it's four years today since we left France, in a very undignified way. But four years has made a big difference to us and now our debts we can pay. We made a vow then that we'd come back again. It's taken us that long to get ready, but tis said Britain wins the last lap, and for that we're now sitting steady. We have left the shores of England behind, said a sharp farewell to all, and the largest amphibious force in the world is set for the Western Wall. A long time we've waited for D-Day, all preliminary work being done, and once more the task is more than plain, clear Europe and banish the Hun. <laughs> <laughs>
The bow of the boat is pointing due south. Our morale is high, you can bet. Though we've done it before, and everyone knows the kind of reception we'll get. For guidance and safety in coming days, we pray to the unseen powers. We don't know if we're on God's side, but we're praying that he is on ours. On the way. In Southampton Bay, at peace we lay, on this the 3rd of June. And to fore and aft, there are thousands of craft, we'll be heading for France very soon. The heart and soul of movement control lay in getting us down to the shore, while the organisation and administration is better than ever before. Here a naval commander our welfare takes over and gives us our landing orders, while high in the sky the RAF boys fly and guard us from Jerry marauders. The vehicles are stored, the troops are on board, and the bridge orders anchors away. Then gently we glide on the outgoing tide to take up our place in the bay. Now our orders we know, we just wait the word go. Then the world's biggest battle begins. It's not all in vain, France must live again, and the Nazis must pay for their sins. Landing Ship Tank who longs for the sea? I can tell you, not me. My experience has not just begun. I've done many trips on various ships. As a soldier, it isn't much fun. Now, sailor, be frank, on a landing ship tank, as far as the Tommy's concerned, things are a bit flat, you'll agree about that, and I think something better we've earned. As a typical example, take this for a sample. More than 500 people on board. The proverbial cat, there's no room to swing that. You can't say that one lives like a lord. The accommodation and bed situation is six to one bed. Yes, it is. And the food that they rig isn't fit for a pig. But they promise to get some that is. At the signal to rally, we dash to the galley for biscuits and bully beef stew, diced carrots and spuds with a dash of soap suds and sloppy from yesterday's brew. At the next meal we get, the sloppy is wet. Our spirits are too, but why worry? We oft wait for hours, inhale snow and showers, but what of it? We ain't in a hurry. The naffy, there's none. Ship's library, no bon, they haven't a book in their place. Understand why I'm blue, I've nothing to do. I'd lay down, but I can't find the space. But we'll probably grumble, as on shores we tumble, and wish we could move in reverse. For we're landing in France, and there's every chance that conditions out there will be worse. The going may be tough, but we're made of the stuff that real British Tommies are made of. Though we grumble and rile in the true British style, there's not a damn thing we're afraid of. Much. So let's get at the hun, and get the job done, and get back to our loved ones at home. 
Let's forget about war. Let's have peace evermore, so that never again need we roam. A letter home. Dear mum and dad, as you probably know, I'm in France in the fighting line, but you've no need to worry about me at all, for I'm having a marvellous time. We journey across on a landing ship tank, you know those flat-bottomed craft, and our large-sized bags vomit were frequently used and then thrown overboard aft. About life on board, you'll know quite a lot if you read those five verses of mine. There's no room to move and nothing to do. I'll say twas a marvellous time. The landing was wet. I'll never forget. How we scrambled down ladders of rope, and there, four miles out, we proceeded to have a bath, but we didn't use soap. We were soaked to the skin by the time we got in. Hands and face had lost all of their grime. As we dodged shot and shell, one would think it was hell, but we thought it a marvellous time. Of the fighting on land, I will not say a lot. I would say a bit if I could, but as Jerry got tougher, the weather got rougher, and now the place is in flood. In the bottom of trench there is mud inches thick. We just sit there and wallow in slime. We can't sleep a wink, and we haven't for days. But we're having a marvellous time. Our spirits are wet, clothes, blankets—you bet. But the battle goes on just the same. Each day we attack, and each day we're thrown back. Then get ready to go in again. Still, it won't be long now till the battle is won. Very soon the sun's going to shine. In the meantime, best wishes from your only son. He's having a marvelous time. D. E. Gray, nineteen forty-four. Oh, what fun that was! Thank you so much to Doug for writing those poems, and to uh, Son Doug for sending them in. Just brilliant! You know, listeners, as long as I'm doing these podcasts and as long as I live, I'm not sure if I'm ever going to find any material quite as good as that poetry. Moving on now, a bit of background to the next episodes. All the water is condemned. And it's quite flat around here. I said at lunch I'd not seen any running water at all. Harold Kidd said there must be a cistern in the room above, as he'd heard water filling a cistern for about five minutes. When I told him Madame slept just above us, he coloured up, and the padre laughed so much he couldn't eat his cheese. Major Leslie Petch, OBE, Dunkirk, 1940. We must go back again. Every one of those men in the water is somebody's son. Captain Tom Woods, OBE, Dunkirk, 1940. I had to take a message from Major Petch to Battalion Headquarters. Travelling on a company motorcycle along the roads was a bit hazardous because of bomb craters. Plus, enemy shells were exploding in the fields around. Suddenly, 
I came across an ambulance which had crashed into a hedgerow. I approached carefully, only to discover that it had been abandoned after being hit by a shell. Not being able to resist the temptation, I had a cautious look in the back to discover... Dum, da, dum, dum, dum. Bill Cheel, Dunkirk, 1940. If you want to find out what happened to the ambulance, you must stay subscribed. And don't forget that Dunkirk wasn't just a retreat. It was one of the most dramatic battles of the war, so well worth hearing more about it. For more information on everything, including photos, blog, social media, go to fightingthroughpodcast.co.uk. For now, I'm Paul Cheel saying bye-bye now.